In March of 2016, doctors at Johns Hopkins announced that they successfully performed the first organ transplants between HIV-positive patients in the United States. This momentous achievement now gives new hope to people who are in desperate need of a transplant, especially those living with HIV, who until now could only receive transplants from non-infected donors. Dr. Dori Segev led the transplant team and is here to speak with Michelle Josephson about the experience. Hi, this is Michelle Josephson. I'm a uh, professor of medicine and medical director of transplantation at University of Chicago. I'm also the past chair of our prior ASN transplant advisory group. I'd like to welcome everyone today. I'm here with Dr. Dori Segev, professor of surgery and epidemiology, as well as the associate vice chair in the Department of Surgery at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. It's really a pleasure to be here with him today, and he also is a member of the Transplant Advisory Group. So, Dory, I think the last time we saw each other was a couple of weeks ago at the White House Organ Summit. It's really an exciting day, and it was, it was really so nice to see you there. I was there making an announcement on the behalf of American Society of Nephrology when ASN announced its commitment to contribute the first $7 million for a kidney disease prize competition in partnership with the XPRIZE Foundation. ASN was taking the opportunity that day to challenge others around the globe to join ASN in making novel wearable or implantable alternatives to dialysis a reality for patients, but I'm hoping that you can share with us today a little bit about what you were talking about that day. Yeah, hi, Michelle, and it's a pleasure to talk to you today, and it was great to see you and a lot of our colleagues at the White House Organ Transplant Summit. I was there primarily talking about the HIV to HIV transplants that we've done and the HOPE Act, the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, which I conceived and wrote and supported through its travels across Capitol Hill a few years ago. And uh, the HIV to HIV transplants are obviously the culmination of that policy action. Yeah, that was really fantastic. It was really wonderful to hear about the work that you were doing and the announcement that you made. I thought maybe it would be helpful to the listeners if you could tell us a little bit about the HOPE Act, maybe start with what it is, what it entails. Right. So backtrack to about 2010, you know, we were watching HIV-positive kidney transplant recipients doing really well with transplantation, basically sort of highlighting the fact that HIV had transitioned from what was really scary and fatal in the 1980s to what is now a chronic disease that we can control so well that we can even immunosuppress the patients and get them transplanted successfully. Um, In South Africa, they were actually using HIV-positive organs for HIV-positive recipients, which kind of made sense and which seemed like something we should be doing in the United States. But unfortunately, when we looked into trying to do this in the U.S., it turned out that that was illegal. And the reason it was illegal was that in the 80s, the National Organ Transplant Act was written. And so it happened to be written during the AIDS scare. And so part of that congressional law said that we couldn't use organs that were HIV positive. And the phrasing of that was that we couldn't use organs infected with the etiologic agent of acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So even that phrasing gives you a sense of the antiquated nature of that law. So we had a law on the books that said we couldn't use HIV positive organs. And so really getting this to change clinically meant that it would take an act of Congress to do that. And so we first started by trying to estimate the number of HIV positive organ that would be available every year. So how many people are dying in a hospital in the correct environment to become an organ donor who didn't become an organ donor because they were HIV positive. And 
we published that in the American Journal of Transplantation, and it turned out that it was about 500 donors per year. So that gives us now some estimates of how many lives will be saved and how much money will be saved because, as you know, every time we do a kidney transplant, we save Medicare a tremendous amount of money. And that gave us the possibility of going basically door-to-door on Capitol Hill and presenting the idea of the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, the HOPE Act, which basically the goal of this act was to say that we no longer want to ban the transplantation of uh, organs from donors who are infected with HIV. Um, We had a lot of help in this endeavor. Anytime I talk about the HOPE Act, I can't talk about it without acknowledging a very critical contributor to this, who was uh, Brian Boyarski, who actually worked in my research group as a post-baccalaureate, having just finished an undergraduate degree in public health at Johns Hopkins, and approached me with his interest in affecting public policy in some way or another. And I said, well, do you want to take on Congress? Because I'm planning to take on Congress. And so he really did a huge amount of legwork on Capitol Hill, day in, day out, going door-to-door, meeting with any legislative assistant that would talk to him. And You know, I would come down when it looked like a meeting uh, was going to require my involvement, and we had help from the HIV Medicine Association and from the ASN. So, again, thank you to the ASN and their uh, advocacy group for helping this bill through. And ultimately, after about two years of intense work, it got passed through the Senate and the House and was one of 57 bills signed by uh, President Obama in 2013. You know, of 7,000 bills introduced that year, 57 were signed into law, and somehow this, you know, sort of Herculean combination of effort from transplant societies, nephrology societies, hepatology societies, patient advocacy groups, HIV advocacy groups, et cetera, brought this bill to the forefront and actually got it signed. What an achievement. Really incredible. Were there, along the way of, you know, having it actually come to fruition, were there people that you saw as champions in in terms of helping build momentum who really got behind it? Yeah. So, um, you know, every time you want legislation to go through, ideally it should be bipartisan, bicameral, which means both chambers, so Senate and House. And we had some really important advocates on both sides of that You know, the major thanks always goes out to the legislative assistants because these are the people who do the day-to-day work and really sort of help move something through. But obviously, they represent members of Congress, and those members, the ones who take an interest, really help move a bill along. So our biggest champion was Senator Tom Coburn, Senator Barbara Boxer, and Congresswoman Lois Capps, and those members and their legislative assistants, their staff really helped move this forward. For example, when we did a big congressional briefing, Congresswoman Capps, who was a nurse, actually came and spoke at the briefing. So in the Senate, our major Democratic supporters were um, Boxer and Baldwin, and then our major Republican supporters were Coburn and Rand Paul. And in the House, really the major Democratic sponsor was Lois Capps, and then we had a handful of Republicans who supported it in the House as well. One interesting process to go through and and how exciting to really make it happen. Now, were you present when President Obama signed it into effect? And if you were, what was that day like? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was invited to attend. Ironically, I was in Russia giving lectures at some transplant centers in Moscow. And so 
I declined the invitation to attend. But Brian Boyarski, who was the student working on this project, got to go. And for me, that was even more fun, was to get to send somebody who, at that time, he was now a medical student. So getting to send the medical student working with my research group to go to the Oval Office and meet Obama. Wow. Now, that's really been quite a wonderful mentor, I must say. That's well, you know, now I tell all the medical students, you know, if you want to meet the president, you have to come work in my research group. <laughs> exactly. Couldn't have better PR <laughs> and draw. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, so you were recently involved in the first HIV-positive organ transplant. And so after this act was passed, what were the steps What had to happen to actually make it possible for you and, and for your institution to be able to go forward and actually do the transplant? You know, this is not something that I thought that I would be learning when I was going through medical school, but as if getting a bill passed through Congress is not already convoluted and complicated and challenging enough, the congressional bill just addressed what is called statute. So statute is congressional law. But transplantation is overseen not just by statute, but by regulations and by policy. So the regulations are the rules made by HHS, by the Secretary of Health, basically. And there is a regulation that oversees transplantation that also needed to be changed. And then there's policy through the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, the OPTN, which we colloquially refer to as UNOS because UNOS holds the OPTN contract. But anyway, there's policy that needed to be changed as well. So the HHS secretary needed to change the HHS final rule about transplantation, and then the OPTN needed to change OPTN policy. And so that actually took two years to happen. And then a couple of months after the regulations and policy change, which then allowed us to get the OPTN variants to do these transplants in March of this year, which is 2016, um, for those listening later than 2016, in March we were able to do the first HIV to HIV liver and kidney transplants at Hopkins, which was very exciting for us. Incredible, just all the steps involved. So as you got ready to do the transplant, did you get any feedback from friends and family about your plans to do this procedure? Was there any concern on their part about it? Yeah, so there's concerns that come from sort of different angles, right? I mean, obviously, everyone's really excited to see this happening. On the patient side of things, obviously, there's the concern of superinfection, so introducing a strain of HIV from a donor that's maybe more aggressive than the strain of HIV in the recipient. And so, you know, sort of working with our ID colleagues, Christine Durand is a faculty member here working with our group who's really taken the lead on the HIV to HIV transplants, particularly from the ID perspective. And, you know, just working with her and with our team in identifying the best ways to match strains and match antiviral resistance patterns so that we don't make somebody's HIV worse in the recipient by giving them, you know, sort of a different disease from their donor. On on the provider side of things, you know, one of the things that we needed to address was, you know, now the donor organs are coming from somebody who has HIV, and so there might be a risk of disease transmission to staff working with the organs. Now, obviously, we all follow universal precautions, and so technically universal precautions should handle any of these things. But, you know, making everybody extra aware that even the organ, which is sitting there on the back table, is infected with HIV and has to be handled with universal precautions, just as a reminder to everybody. 
but really, you know, we're used to transplanting people with HIV, transplanting people with hepatitis C. You know, we're used to the disease transmission risk and the extraordinary need for universal precautions in all of our patients. For the recipients, was their HIV medication changed in any way? Were, they, were their antiretrovirals adjusted or changed, or, or was it possible to have them be transplanted with the same regimen that they had been on before? Yeah, without going into too much of the details, I will say that there were some changes made. Some of the changes that one might make would be related to the fact that the donor is HIV positive. But remember, as, as you know, a lot of the changes to the HIV regimen might come from the fact that now the patient is receiving immunosuppression and there are certain HIV agent slash immunosuppression interactions that are problematic. And you could probably tell the podcast a lot better than I could tell the podcast what these interactions are. But, you know, there there are a number of them that for example, reduce the metabolism of the calcineurin inhibitors. And so you can you end up changing the antiretroviral regimen on a lot of HIV-positive patients anyway, regardless of the HIV nature of the organ they receive. So would you say that the HIV to HIV procedure differs from other transplants to HIV-positive patients or not particularly? Well, I mean, for the most part, Technically, a kidney transplant, a kidney transplant, a liver transplant, a liver transplant, regardless of the infectious diseases that are under consideration. And so the technical operation itself is exactly the same. The management of the patient is mostly things we already know. So it's mostly the management of a transplant recipient and the management of a recipient who has HIV. And we've done lots of these transplants, and nationally there have been hundreds of these transplants performed. So Transplanting somebody who has HIV is not a new challenge, but it's certainly a challenge. The only thing that the HIV to HIV transplants add, obviously, is the fact that the donor also has HIV, and so we worry about strain matching and things like that. Um, but really, when you think about all of the various issues that you have to keep in mind when doing a transplant, that's kind of a small part of the equation. It makes sense. One question I had, and I think others might be wondering, is could you ever see a point where you would consider doing an HIV to HIV positive transplant where it's a living donor who has been infected? Yeah, that's a great question. It brings up a couple of things. So you might think getting the HOPE Act passed was great news for people who have HIV or are on a waiting list. But it was also actually great news for people living with HIV because I was getting emails on a regular basis as soon as any of this stuff hit the media. And remember, the HOPE Act we've been working on for six years, and so it's been in the media for a long time, um, of people who were frustrated because they had HIV. And because they had HIV, they weren't allowed to be organ donors. They weren't allowed to register as an organ donor should they die and should they want to leave a living legacy, et cetera. So for basically anyone living with HIV, this was huge news that they could now register to be a deceased donor. And, you know, that's something that a lot of people want to be able to do when when they should die from whatever unfortunate circumstances they want to at least be able to leave a legacy for somebody else to have their lives saved. Now, similarly, I not only get emails about people wanting to register to become deceased donors, but I get many emails about people who want to be living donors. And so, you know, typically somebody has a uh, you know, a loved one who has kidney failure or liver failure, and they say, hey, I really want to donate to my loved one, but I'm HIV positive. How does that work? Right now, nobody that I'm aware of has put together a protocol for HIV positive live 
kidney donors. Because the worry, obviously, is that if you donate a kidney and you have HIV and then you get HIV-associated nephropathy or some other disease that might be directly or indirectly related to the fact that you have HIV, it might put you at a higher risk of developing kidney failure down the road. And obviously, we don't want live kidney donors to have kidney failure. However, and we presented this at a recent conference, it turns out that if you select people properly, there probably is a subset of HIV-infected individuals who are at low risk for developing kidney failure down the road and who actually might be pretty good candidates for live donation. So one of the things we're doing now is using data from some big national cohort studies. We're estimating ESRD risk in individuals with HIV of different phenotypes, trying to identify the lowest risk phenotype, and then we are planning to put together a uh, prospect study of HIV-positive living kidney donation here at Hopkins. So it is coming. I think you know we're going to be very careful with eligibility criteria until we better understand this, and obviously we're going to follow the donors very carefully as well. But I think that you know down the road, this will be something that will be done as well. Very exciting and great to think about really increasing the potential donor pool, which is a big issue, obviously. Right. So thinking back to the transplant, how long did you and your team prepare for doing this HIV to HIV transplant? How much um, planning went into it? We've been talking about HIV to HIV transplant since 2010 when we started this whole process. Um, Obviously, once the HOPE Act was signed at the end of 2013, we started planning with much more um, serious intent, knowing that it would actually happen. This is a major team effort. You know, this involved Christine Durand from ID. Aaron Tobin from Pathology has been critical not only in the scientific endeavor, but in the clinical endeavor as well. We had Andrew Cameron leading the liver team preparation and Niraj Desai leading the kidney team preparation and then all of our OR nurses and other OR staff. Um, It took months to really get the hospital ready to do something like this, mostly to just spread information about the fact that it's now legal and the types of precautions that we were going to take and what the OPTN required of us from our OPTN variants. And then another major player was our organ procurement organization, um, the Living Legacy Foundation of Maryland, run by Charlie Alexander, really did And I could list 10 other people from LLF who helped us with this, but really great strides were made through our OPO in helping educate other OPOs because, remember, these organs come from an OPO that, until the law was passed, was functioning under the assumption that HIV to HIV transplants were illegal, so pursuing HIV-positive donors was also unnecessary. Um, So our OPO also helped in this endeavor. So you can imagine all of the aspects of the team that needed to come on board to understand what we were doing. Sounds like quite a challenging situation in terms of coordinating, getting everyone with the same goal and coordinating it to make it happen. Um, Sounds like there were a number of hoops that you had to jump through. I'm just wondering, what was the most challenging thing about performing the transplant? I really think the most challenging thing about our first case, which will also be the most challenging thing coming forward, is the fact that there are thousands of hospitals in this country from where donors come who are still not entirely aware of the fact that it's legal to use HIV-positive organs, how we're using them, what the HOPE Act is all about, what the OPTN variance is about, how to communicate with their OPOs, you know, that we have these donors, et cetera. And I think that 
once we get the word out to all of these hospitals, so this is well beyond the transplant community. This is to every hospital in the United States. I think that is our biggest challenge going forward. And that was a similar challenge at the time when we were looking for that first donor to do these transplants because, you know, we had to find a donor from a hospital that was aware of this, that was already interacting with their OPO and their OPO was already on board, et cetera. Sounds like getting the information out to the right people is critical. Right. It sounds as well. I hear. I can hear your voice. That's been incredibly rewarding. And I just wondered if you could, you know, share with us what's really been the most rewarding part of this whole process. Yeah. Well, I mean, the most rewarding part is that we get to help people. Like, this is like the sort of this ultimate thing in the identification of a problem that's affecting your patients. So we had patients with HIV who were dying on our waiting list and organs that we could be using but weren't allowed to, doing the research to justify a change in policy and then taking that research to Capitol Hill, just like they taught us to do on Schoolhouse Rock, and then getting the bill passed and then implementing the bill and operationalizing the bill and bringing it back to our patients. And at the end of the day, you know, on that day in March, two lives were saved because of the first HIV to HIV transplants in the United States. And going forward, many, many more lives will be saved. And right now, our goal and our challenge is to work with all of the other transplant centers in the United States and help people develop their clinical protocols, get the OPTN variants that they need, work with their OPOs, and start doing this. Can you talk to me a little bit about who you think benefits from this HOPE Act? I'm sure that it's not just the transplant recipient that you're operating on. And I was wondering if you could sort of share with us your vision about who this has helped. Yeah, so, you know, being able to use organs from HIV-positive donors means that we have new organs in circulation, and that's huge because we obviously, our biggest problem in transplantation today is the lack of organs, the difference between the supply and the demand for organs. And so you have 100,000-plus people on a waiting list, and any time an HIV-positive organ becomes available, not only does it take somebody who's HIV-positive off the list and gets them transplanted, so not only does it benefit patients on the waiting list with HIV, but remember now that person comes off the list and everybody else marches forward, so it benefits basically everyone on the waiting list. We have more organs now that we can use for transplantation. And like I alluded to before, it also benefits every single person living with HIV today because Before the HOPE Act, there was a huge stigma associated with wanting to register to be an organ donor and not being able to register for that just because you happen to be infected with HIV. Well, now that stigma has been lifted, and anyone with HIV can sign their organ donor registration card and can become registered to be an organ donor, which is a wonderful thing for people to be able to do if that's what they want to do. Absolutely. No, it really is incredible how many people it ends up benefiting. It's really terrific. You know, I recently had a chance to talk to some of the folks at uh, Penn about a study that they're doing where they're trying also to increase the organ pool, looking at donors who have HCV and seeing if recipients who have perhaps a very small window because of their medical situation, a very small window for transplant, see if they would accept these HCV-positive organs and then would be followed to see if they convert, and if they convert, then treated with anti-HCV agents. 
And, you know, this is obviously under study, but, I, you know, it also brings up the question about whether there's the possibility one day of giving an HIV positive organ to someone um, who doesn't have HIV if they desperately need an organ. I wondered what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, that's a great concept that you bring up. And actually, at Hopkins, we have a similar study going on of placing HCV, hepatitis C positive organs, into people who are hepatitis C negative, and then, if necessary, treating their disease afterwards. And I think that this will prove to be effective and reasonable for the right patient and something that we would consider with other diseases, for example, with HIV. There's one issue now, which is, as written, the HOPE Act only allowed transplantation of HIV-positive organs into HIV-positive patients. Again, ideally, we would have just made a simple change to eliminate the ban on the use of HIV-positive organs, but there was a lot of concern that they might accidentally end up in people who are HIV-negative or that people might be doing positive to negative transplants prematurely, et cetera. So right now, it's not a legal possibility, but I do think that as the care of HIV improves and, as you say, the situation where somebody is desperate to receive an organ transplant is often much more critical than what they would have to deal with in terms of suppressing HIV down the road, that this may be something that becomes a reality down the road, but it would require another legal change. So are you ready to uh, gear up again and go back to Capitol Hill? (laughs) I'll do what I need to do to help my patients. So it turns out that this is ASN's 50th anniversary, exciting year for so many reasons, and really there's been quite a few changes in kidney transplantation over the years, and I think particularly exciting over the past few years, things that have changed with with some of the chains and swaps. I think really the the face of transplantation is is changing in a very positive and exciting way, and and, and I really wanted to ask you that since you've been practicing, uh, what do you feel are the most significant advances that you've seen firsthand? For me, in the last 10 years, in kidney transplantation, probably the most palpable advance has been how to handle patients with incompatible living donors. So ABO incompatible, HLA incompatible living donors. Really, 10 years ago, a lot of them were told at whatever center they were at or even at their dialysis center, look, you've got a live donor but unfortunately your live donor is the wrong blood type or you have an anti-HLA antibody against your live donor, sorry, you need to join the waiting list and, you know, let's hope for something for you. And today that is absolutely not the case. And, you know, to see the explosion of kidney exchange transplants being performed, according to SRTR data, there have been about 5,000 transplants performed through kidney exchanges or chains or some other sort of what we call paired donation where your donor doesn't come um, as the intended donor but comes from somebody else through some sort of reorganization. Um, And that, you know, to me, that is an unbelievable progress from the paper we first wrote in 2005 in JAMA, you know, sort of laying out the mathematical framework for how to do this and to see this implemented and to see various groups doing this and to see this become almost 20% of the live donor transplants that we do in the United States is unbelievably exciting. And going sort of hand-in-hand with that is the use of desensitization and other antibody modulation therapies to allow people to cross that last HLA or ABO barrier. So, for example, if you're broadly sensitized, you're not going to find 
a compatible transplant in an exchange, but you might find somebody that you have only a small amount of antibody against, and then we can use plasmapheresis and other modalities for making that transplant happen. So really, you know, 10 years ago, we would tell people, if you can find a compatible donor, you can have a transplant. Today, we can tell people, if you find a donor, you can have a transplant, and there are so many ways that we can get that done. And that, I think, has really been a huge change in, in what we've done in the last 10 years. I agree, and I think that it's it's so important for us to keep pushing the envelope and figure out more ways to increase the donor pool and allow recipients who might not have been able to get transplanted before get transplanted uh, right. in the future, especially as we see that gap between the number of transplants done and the number of the increasing number of people on the waiting list, uh, which is obviously a big problem. So what else would you say that you see for the future of transplantation? I think ideally, you know, our biggest limitation is donors. So I think the future of transplantation is something that would improve the donor pool. Now, there are a few sort of more easily accessible things, and then there are some sort of bigger long-term dreams. The longest-term dream, obviously, would be something like tolerance, xenotransplantation, artificial organs, bioartificial organs, things like that, that would basically either take organs that we're using today and make them last a lifetime or that would create organs from sort of a bioartificial space. On the sort of more tangible horizon are things like the uh, machine resuscitation techniques to allow us to use organs that might not be ideal organs without such a resuscitation. So we see this in lung and in liver where organs that in the past would not even be considered are now being transplanted successfully. So an expansion of the donor pool by taking organs that are currently available to us and making them more transplantable. And in kidney, I think a lot of growth of kidney transplantation will involve live donors. So better understanding the risks that live donors take and how to mitigate those risks and how to care for live donors in the long term to reduce any risks they have of the sequelae of living with one kidney and how to educate potential donors on the risks that they might be taking and, you know, to improve the informed consent process and to improve our understanding of what really the risks are for donors. I think all of those things will help us be comfortable to expand the live donor pool. So as we think about sort of pushing the envelope a little bit with transplantation, what are your thoughts on how programs are evaluated and outcomes? If we're going to try to push things, the outcomes may not be as expected. So I'm just wondering how you, you know, obviously regulations are important to try and oversee a program and make sure that, that programs are performing well, but they can also be restrictive in that they may inhibit pushing the envelope and trying things that may end up maybe risky but may benefit people. Right. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a really hot topic in our field, which is sort of this balance between quality improvement, otherwise known as CMS regulation, and risk aversion at the transplant center. So obviously, if you are worried that you're going to lose your CMS certification or you're going to get flagged and then the president of your hospital will be upset and will shut down your program or CMS will shut down your program, et cetera. There's a lot of worry of regulatory action that then causes people to maybe be risk-averse. And whether risk-averse behavior is wise or unwise in that setting is also controversial. Um, but it's something the transplant community is struggling with 
Actually, our group was just one of three groups to receive a grant through the AST and the ASTS to look at our regulatory environment and to try to come up with the best regulatory metrics to ensure quality, yet to reduce risks of, you know, this sort of risk-averse, regressive behavior where you're not willing to push the envelope because you're worried about how the regulators will handle you. I mean, at Hopkins, our incompatible kidney transplant program is one of those examples of what the risks are when you take on more innovative, risky procedures. And we have a very strong incompatible transplant program and decades of experience doing this. And when CMS started getting involved in transplant center regulation, obviously, we were one of the first centers that they approached with the threat of regulatory action because our outcomes were not quite up to what would be expected of HLA-compatible transplants. But obviously, we were doing many HLA-incompatible transplants, and it took a year-long discussion with CMS about those risks and whether those risks were merited. Um, that eventually led to what was called a mitigating factors allowance for our center that said we are not expected to have as good of outcomes from HLA incompatible as we would from HLA compatible. And so that is sort of a known risk of doing HLA incompatible transplants and one that CMS will sort of forgive us for. Um, but it's, you know, it's not an easy process to convince a regulator that what you're doing is the right thing for the patients. It took us writing a survival benefit paper in the New England Journal to really prove that our patients were benefiting from the transplants that they were undergoing. Um, and it took a lot of regulatory discussions to make us safe from that risk and allow us to continue to provide what we felt and demonstrated was the best care for our patients, despite what the regulatory models, because they lack the ability to account for these sorts of things, would have indicated. But it's something that's ongoing. It's an ongoing debate in our community, and I think something that will change uh, over the next few years. Circling back to um, the HIV-positive organ donation that you did, was there any concern that the outcome wasn't particularly positive or good, that this might end up being a problem in terms of the regulators and, and looking at outcome, or, or is that ne you know not really so much a concern? Well, it's certainly, you know, any of these transplants that we do put us at risk of getting flagged by the regulators. It's a risk that we're aware of. Fortunately, our volumes are high enough that even if we have one bad outcome, that's not going to make or break whether we get regulatory action. But it's something that we're aware of and something that we're tracking very carefully. We don't anticipate that the outcomes of positive to positive will be any different from the outcomes of negative to positive, which is something that we're already doing on a regular basis. Uh, but it remains to be seen. And if there are worse outcomes in this cohort, it's a conversation we're going to have to have again with the regulators. So just wondering if there are any other issues or areas in the HIV-positive organ donation space that you wanted to comment on or, or share with us? Um, now we've gone through a lot, and this has been—it's uh, been great uh, having this conversation with you about it. I think it's an exciting area. It's one that's growing, and that we will see growth in over the next several years. I would encourage anyone taking care of people with HIV who are on the transplant waiting list or are on dialysis and would benefit from a transplant to 
talk to transplant centers about the possibility of making the HIV-positive organ pool available to those patients. People at transplant centers who want to implement HIV to HIV protocols, please contact us. The name of our endeavor is now called Hope in Action, so it's basically the HOPE Act and operationalizing this across the United States. And anyone is welcome to email me. My email is my first name, D-O-R-R-Y, at jhu.edu, or you can find me in Twitter space if that's uh, where you roll, which is just my first name, underscore my last name, S-E-G-E-V, at the Twitter sphere, or contact me or any, anybody else in our group, um, and we're happy to help you and help your patients. Well, Dory, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your experience and all of your efforts on behalf of patients. And it's really been fascinating, and I really enjoyed hearing about what you've done and very much appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Well, and thank you for inviting me and for uh, taking the time to go through all of these issues and for your interest in this. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, All Rights Reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.